electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu in for Kelly Evans. We've got all the angles covered on this very busy Friday for the markets. Stocks heading higher. They are bid, but bond yields are sinking as the Fed officials hint that the pace of hikes may begin, may begin to slow. And then the yen tumbling against the U.S. dollar. And SNAP, by the way, falling 30% after its results is the weakness it saw in advertising a sign of things to come for other big tech companies, bigger tech companies. We're also getting ready for earnings beyond big tech. It's oil, it's autos, it's consumer names all reporting next week. Who will win out? Exxon or Chevron? Ford or GM? Kraft or Colgate? We're going to trade them all, but we begin with Bob Pisani and the markets right now. And the narrative has shifted dramatically, Bob. What's happening? Well, the important thing is uh, we were looking like a down day before the open and some of the earnings weren't particularly helping, particularly American Express. And we also had higher yields. But that has turned around. Now, look at this. We've got a nice update. In fact, we're just off of the highs and a nice up week. In fact, the Dow Jones Industrial Average up almost 4% for the week. And so is the S&P and so is the NASDAQ. It's a fairly broad rally for the week. And I think part of the turnaround and most of the turnaround happened with yields. Remember, we're slaves to the macroeconomic picture. And that is basically what the two-year yield and the 10-year yield are had. Earlier on, the yields were up and they went the other way. Around nine o'clock, there was a Wall Street Journal story as Dom referenced, uh, maybe, maybe they'll start pausing a little bit. A lot of hopium in this story, but you see it definitely moved bond yields to the downside, and that helped move stocks up here. Now, the other, the other big story is the earnings picture, kind of a mixed picture. Overall, earnings have been better than feared, but Amex kind of surprised people by having fairly large uh, provisions that were put into their estimates, and that led people to think, oh, well, they're thinking maybe there's going to be a bit of a downturn. Uh, that's all not necessarily going to happen, but that's what people were thinking. But you can see Amex is well off the lows here. And Visa, MasterCard, Capital One, they're not really moving that much on this. So here's what happened to Amex. And what you have to watch for Amex is how's consumer card spending doing? And it was really good. You know, 22%, commercials up 20, new cards, a lot of new cards there, 3 million plus. That provisions number, that's what kind of bothered people, 778 million for provisions. That's potential future losses. It's not actual losses, potential future losses losses. That's about 200 million more than they had anticipated. Elsewhere, just let me show you uh, some of these down movers today. Uh, Verizon had a little bit of a disappointment on the earnings. That's been down all day. ExxonMobil, I'm going to surprise you. That's a 52-week high for ExxonMobil. We've had a good week for energy stocks overall. And Merck has been a terrific performer this month. It's not getting a lot of player commentary, but that's right near a 52-week high for Merck uh, as well. Elsewhere, again, this whole choppy earnings picture in the last 12 hours, Whirlpool people watch for sort of global supply and demand. It's a basic appliance maker. That's a two-year low that you're looking at for Whirlpool. Uh, They lowered their guidance and they're reducing their production volumes 35%. 
based on expectations for softer demand. So you see it's a very, very choppy picture uh, out there. Finally, for the S&P 500, just remember where we've been the last couple of months. We're essentially in a trading range between about 3,600 and about 3,800. You see that? That's the last few months there. So I'd say, Dom, right now, uh, the trend is slightly to the upside, but still we've got to get through this earnings season and figure out what the 2023 glide path for earnings is going to look like. Guys, back to you. All right, Bob Pisani, thank you very much for the market update there. And by the way, we want to bring to your attention right now that the Dow, as you can see behind us here, is sitting at session highs up about 590 points right now. So let's bring in Steve Leisman, also Greg Daco, chief economist at EY Parthenon. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Steve, maybe we'll start with you. Bob had alluded to it during his market update. But let's take us through a little bit of the Fed speak and some of the narrative that's driving this market action. The dollar has fallen off. Yields have come down a little bit. So what exactly happened in the play-by-play by your account? By my account, a lot less than the market seems to believe has happened. However, I will uh, dutifully report what I think the market thinks happened is that I, I... San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly, who we know to be a little bit more on the Dove side in the context that everybody on the Fed right now wants to hike rates and, and has supported hiking them very, very fast and aggressively. Uh, that said, uh, Daly comes forward and says, probably do 75 of the upcoming meeting, but after that, we're going to think about what it is we're going to do, the possibility we could go slower. Um, I didn't hear her suggest a much lower funds rate than already. We said we really need to think about what happens next. So I'm not hearing a whole lot of really barn-burning news, but again, that's what the market heard. And what they heard was resulted in the funds rate. If you take a look at where we were for the peak rate on that May contract, we're at 503 this morning, which sort of uh, reflected a lot of hawkish news that was out there. And then it went down, I guess it's 490 now, four, what does that say, 488. Um, We lost about 12 basis points. So still seeing an aggressive Fed just maybe one that gets there a little more slowly. Uh, maybe, uh, Dom, you're smarter about why the market thinks this is fantastic news. I mean, th- I guess the idea here is that the it's been so one-sided right now, right? This idea that you could have this uh, unending, unrelenting move higher in interest rates because of a Fed that's going to become over-aggressive, that any sign of relief is basically something that you can try to hang your hat on. I, I-, I want to point out, a gig. I mean, Greg, so-, so let's bring you to the conversation here. I have a couple quotes I want to show you, and I'll show viewers as well. This is from Daly, coming from the comments that she just made. It says, we don't just keep going up at 75 basis point increments. Following up by saying, I hear a lot of concern right now that we are going to go for broke. We need to really think hard about how restrictive we need to be, but then also clarifies a little bit later on in those comments Daly said that she'd like to do a step down in the pace of rate hikes, but notes to laughter from the group that, quote, the data have not been cooperating. We're not there yet in terms of where restrictive policy will have to be in order to deliver inflation that is at 3% next year. That seems like a lot of statement and hedging, statement and hedging on their part, but you got to kind of agree to Steve's point she sounds relatively dovish compared to, say, Bullard at St. Louis or others, Kashkari in Minneapolis, right? Yeah, or that's Harker. that's correct. I mean, I, I think that the Fed is having a, a very difficult exercise ahead of itself. Uh, it has to communicate 
its ongoing intent to maintain a, a very uh, tight monetary policy stance, uh, but it wants to distinguish the pace at which it's tightening from the level of rates. And that's a very delicate calibrating exercise. If you bring, back, uh, bring us back to the, the minutes, the FOMC minutes, you saw in the minutes that there was a lot of conversation around this idea of risk balancing, mitigating the risk of overshooting on the rates front versus the risk of underdoing it in terms of bringing down inflation. I think the balance of risk is gradually balancing itself out, and the Fed is increasingly intent on considering tapering the pace of rate hikes as it goes into 2023 in an environment where this global policy tightening cycle has brought about a significant slowdown in global activity. Okay, so the, the, this, this, this construct then that we're dealing with right now is one where the markets and the economy have to try to find some kind of a balance point here, Steve. I, I mean, this is a situation right now where if you look at the Fed and what it has to do, it's fairly evident. The clear and present danger in their mind is inflation. So is there any other option right now than to do it until they see some signs that inflation is actually cooling off? I don't, I don't think so. And, and before I answer your question more fully, uh, Dominic, let me just point out that Harker yesterday said he expected to end the year well above 4%. So he's a very kind of middle-of-the-road guy. Uh, he, he's not even an economist, but he's uh, been a member of the FOMC for a while. And you want to follow him as where maybe the middle is on all of this stuff. Uh, as to your question, it's also well worth remembering the Federal Reserve believes that it just became restrictive with rates. So think about that, Dom. You and I and, and the markets have endured this huge increase in rates to this point. The Fed feels like it is only now at this point restraining the economy. What does that mean? It means up until the point that the Fed got restrictive, it was either neutral on, on the economy or it was even stimulating the economy. So in terms of the Fed stopping now and whether or not we would see any influence, uh, Daly pointed out maybe we're seeing some slowing in the economy right now. But it's probably well worth not looking so closely at the financial markets and more looking at the real economy, Dom. And from that standpoint, the Fed sees some cooling on the headline side, but is really concerned about continued pressure, which we've had month after month in the services side, both driven from perhaps some wage and labor inflation, as well as other input costs. Uh, Greg, we're going to give the last word to you here. In your, in your expert opinion, where is it that we are likely to see the first signs that we are at or just near a peak in inflation? Well, we've already started seeing it in terms of headline inflation with uh, the recent fallback in energy prices. What we really want to be looking at is, is core inflation. And when that starts to turn, I wouldn't be surprised that we start to see that turning towards the back end of the year with what's happening on the housing market front. Uh, let's not forget also that the Fed has communicated clearly with its dot plot that it has another 125 basis points of rate hikes uh, locked right. in for this year. So that would bring us from the initial onset of restrictive policy towards much tighter policy. So I think we have to calibrate uh, our expectations, as the Fed minutes said, in terms of what the Fed will eventually do. It does not want to sound excessively dovish, but it is increasingly considering that the sum of the tightening from different central banks around the world is greater than the individual tightening processes. And the interactions and financial market conditions implications will have an effect on how the Fed decides to move forward going uh, into 2023. All right. Greg Daco at EY Parthenon, thank you very much. Same to our own Steve Leesman. We'll see you later on this afternoon, Steve.
All right, the market is on pace for a positive week despite the uncertainty about inflation and interest rates. It's also the third straight week of gains for the Dow, something that has not happened all year. My next guest says he plans to ride out the volatility with value-oriented stocks and says three names look especially attractive at this environment. So joining me now is Randall Ely, President and Chief Investment Officer of the Edgar Lomax Company. They specialize in large cap value investing. So, Randall, you came armed with a shopping list. I wonder, though, in light of the conversation that we just had about the economy and rates, what do you feel like the economy is telling us about where the markets are and where the markets should be? We are clearly in a market uh, that is, is showing much greater signs of nervousness than normal, although markets you know, are always volatile. But uh, with all of the debate back and forth as to whether the Federal Reserve uh, is about to slow down or whether it's going to keep raising rates at 75 basis points, uh, the, the prices are just back and forth. If you notice the three stocks um, that I, I was actually putting forward today, it seems as if most other investors saw the same thing. They, they're all up sharply. But I don't think it's over. So we still like those stocks, by the way. One final thing about uh, inflation is that uh, I'm in the camp that believes that we may be at a peak. Okay, so if we're at a peak in your mind, a lot of folks may disagree with you here, but if, if we are in, oh, yes. in, in your mind, what then are the picks that you have to ride out this in kind of environment, or are you kind of picking these stocks because they're hedged relatively compared to others given the inflationary outlook? Uh, yes, the, the, the latter. If, if you notice, all of these companies are relatively recession-proof. Um, one is a utility, and even though the utilities have been falling um, uh, you know, pretty sharply recently, uh, the, it's not unusual to see that kind of move when you're getting near the end. Um, also, I don't think uh, that necessarily bodes well for other companies, uh, other sectors, when you see utilities falling like this, but utilities are going to reach a bottom. And when they do, uh, I think it will be um, a sign of the acknowledgement of investors that these companies uh, are going to keep earning money even when other other corporations are seeing earnings declines, that their balance sheets are solid. I mean, after all, they're monopolies. And the other two, uh, we're looking at a consumer durables, uh, a healthcare company. People simply need their goods and services. And so they will be among the very last companies people will stop spending uh, on their products. And, so, uh, so just for the record here, Randall, can you take us through what those names are in the, in the few moments we have left? Yes, um, uh, Exelon. And coming in too today, you know, we were looking at uh, a dividend yield of 3.8%, uh, which is just great in a market where the 10-year, the you know, we've, we've been so happy recently because it, it actually has hit four. Uh, but the fact is, Exelon is a company that with earnings, uh, we can see those earnings grow. We also see great coverage rates and the dividends are likely to grow in the future too. Pfizer, I think most people know that name with the with their, their COVID fighting uh, products. And uh, here now we're looking at uh, also a, a solid dividend yield, uh, somewhere in the 3.6, 3.7 area and a, a price to earnings ratio of nine. So so you're talking about possibly earning 10 to 12% a year over the next five to 10 years without earnings growth. And finally, Walgreens. A lot of investors have been down on Walgreens, Walgreens but they have been reporting uh, uh, 
uh, profits consistently recently. And I think the market is beginning to notice that uh, this month. Dividend yield almost 6%, by the way. And a, a, a single-digit price-earnings ratio uh, between 7 and 8. So we, we like this kind of protection. Strong balance sheets. These companies aren't going anywhere. And I think they will take us through uh, a tough economic environment. Walgreens, Exelon, and Pfizer. Those are the picks from Randall Ely with the Edgar Lomax Company. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, too. All right, coming up on the show, the five mega caps on deck to report next week. And one thing investors will be watching for sure, the impact of that strong U.S. dollar. Look at how much of an impact is expected and who's the most exposed. Plus, big oil, big auto, and big consumer brands. Also on deck next week, we got one stock in each group that stands out from the rest. And as we head out to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. As you're seeing right now, the Dow is up 4%. The S&P up nearly 4%. The Nasdaq is up nearly 5%. At this point here, the exchange is back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. While the dollar is on pace for its first negative week in three, it's been rising steadily this year, as you can see in the chart behind me. And that strength has been a major headwind for multinational corporations with the five mega cap technology companies on deck next week being no exception. For a look at how much it could depress growth and what's being done to mitigate the impact, I'm joined now by Steve Kovac, who is our CNBC tech correspondent. Uh, This is no surprise. If you're a big multinational and the dollar costs more it's going to hurt your results. Yeah, Take us through what you're seeing. Right yeah, now. that's right. So it, it's a strengthening dollar. That's one of the biggest headwinds affecting all the mega cap uh, names that are reporting next week. Like you said, Don, these are huge multinationals that generate most of their sales outside the U.S. And we got a cascade of warnings from each company on how foreign exchange will put a wet blanket on growth, leading to modest outlooks from the quarter from names like Apple, Microsoft, and Meta. All of these are expected to feel pain in different ways, though, for Apple, for example, CFO Luca Maestri warning last earnings, FX will put a damper on the company's best-in-class margins. As for Meta, they were warning about a 6% drag on sales in their metaverse division called Reality Labs. That already loses several billion dollars a quarter anyway. Over on Microsoft, they were sounding the most exposed to FX, with CFO Amy Hood saying last earnings to expect a 5% hit to overall revenue growth. So now the question is, what do they do about these foreign exchange headwinds? As for Apple, they're raising prices on the iPhone 14 and in the App Store across the EU and South American and Asian countries where the dollar is the strongest. Meta also raising prices on its older Metaverse headset by 100 bucks, and that new MetaQuest Pro headset they announced 
last week? Well, that costs an eye-popping $1,500, Dom. And companies without pricing power are cutting costs wherever they can. We've seen recent layoffs at Microsoft and project cuts across Google, for example. Now, the good news for all these companies, FX is predicted to be more favorable after we get through the end of the year, with Microsoft's hood telling investors last quarter FX should ease up in the spring and summer of 2023, Dom. So I guess it begs the question, Steve. Anybody, CFO, treasurer or otherwise, has seen the chart, has watched it continuously grind higher at an upward angle. How much do you think then is already expected from these FX headwinds in these quarterly reports coming up in the next one to two quarters? I mean, you mentioned Microsoft's already expecting things to ease. I wonder if investors are doing the same thing. Yeah, and it, it's different by name, too. So the two companies I didn't really mention there were Google and Amazon, and they actually kind of indicated we're less exposed to these foreign exchange headwinds, in part because they do a lot of spending here in the U.S. And Amazon, for instance, said, look, our operating income, we're not going to see any significant headwinds there. But where it does hurt companies like Amazon, their cloud business, which is you know a big multinational business for them, and it's very... Um, susceptible to these uh, headwinds on foreign exchange. So same thing with Microsoft and cloud and Google's cloud. So even if their core businesses are okay, there are segments, important segments within those companies that are very vulnerable. All right. Steve Kovacs, CNBC tech correspondent. Thank you very much. All right. While the dollar will be a big factor in technology earnings, it will not be the only factor. If SNAP is any indication, an economic slowdown may already be in play. The company saying its ad revenue growth slipped to single digits for the first time since going public. That seems to be flashing a warning sign to the street with all of Snap's peers in social media and otherwise deeply in the red. So what can investors glean as tech earnings kick into high gear? Let's discuss this with Yusuf Scully. He's the managing director over at Truist, covers a lot of these technology and tech adjacent names. Yusuf, uh, you heard Steve's report here. We, We kind of know what some of the headwinds are going to be. In your mind, has the market for these mega cap names sold off enough to make them attractive? Well, so, hey, Dom, thanks for having me. So at a high level, we think they have, um, but the devil is in the details, right? So you guys talked a lot about FX. We think the market, by and large, has already absorbed a fair amount of it. But if you look at sell-side expectations, not every um, estimate has been adjusted. Uh, you probably saw that we had lowered expectations based on FX and uh, bigger prospects of a recession for next year about three weeks ago. And um, and we've seen more coming, but I'm not sure everybody there. The good news is I think the buy side is already ahead of the sell side on this. In terms of, um, you know, kind of other headwinds, I, I would say the biggest headwind is just lack of visibility into 2023 and what kind of recession we're going to have if we do end up having a recession. And the other is around just cost cutting. Everybody has been rushing to cut, to cut costs. Um, Google has been probably least uh, at doing that. Meta will hear next uh, week what they're guiding to OPEX for 2023, because at the end of every 3Q, that's when they talk about following year's OPEX. I would say that's probably going to be the biggest um, KPI or the biggest data point to check on, on Meta. So, so Yusuf, uh, you mentioned the, the exposure, relatively speaking, to what could be a hypothetical economic slowdown. Over the past decade plus, many of these mega cap names have been viewed as relative safe havens. They could withstand some of the downside pressures in the economy if they were to happen. They have stronger balance sheets, more cash on hand than smaller cap companies. 
So, so what then does become the good value play? What would you be buying? What are you recommending right now in terms of which beaten down stocks represent the best opportunity? Yeah, so keep in mind that we cover internet and digital media. Our names tend to be extremely volatile. And, uh, y- y- you know, you don't go to sleep very easy um, owning them, particularly in these kinds of envi- in this kind of environment. That said, not all internet names are created equal. We think Google or Alphabet, considering the fact that 80% of their business is coming from search, which is really utility, should do relatively well. Um, and, you know, we expect them to grow in the high single digits. Uh, on year on year basis, uh, e- which again in this environment is is pretty impressive. We think Amazon is one that should also do pretty well next um, next week. Facebook we continue to like, but we think on on, on the back of what we heard yesterday uh, uh, from Snap, they're a little more at risk, uh, but certainly not as much at risk as Snap. And among mid caps, the two one we like are Uber because we think their mobility business is going through the roof right now with the reopening, and the other DoorDash, which the stock is down 60% plus, and we think it's one of the best mid caps to to own and uh, one of the best to be managed um, in a pretty high secular growth uh, category, which is delivery, food delivery. All right, so Yusuf, we got just a few moments left here. We've got your picks. I wonder if you could tell us and, and viewers and listeners out there how much interest rates and projections for rates factor into your models and your expectations? Yeah, very much so. So when you talk, when, when we talked earlier about uh, increasing the prospects of a recession for next year, um, what that meant is practically in a financial model, you basically hike your uh, uh, weighted average cost of capital or you assume that capital is going to be coming in much higher uh, uh, to these companies across the board. And that's why we've basically took a haircut to our entire universe. And I think, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, mechanics, but that is definitely one of the biggest uh, drivers of valuation right now for this group. All right, Yusef Scully at Truist, thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. Coming up on the show, nuclear power has, for now, been left out of sanctions against Russia, but what happens if that situation changes. We look at some of the biggest players in the space, including this one, the mystery chart, up more than 100%, doubling just so far this year. And the slowdown in housing not sparing the very top of the market. Mega mansions are sitting unsold. We are live at one of them. You're seeing some pictures and video right there. You're going to want to see the rest. And how much, say, $23 million gets you in western Massachusetts. And then as we head out to break... Take a look at the Dow heat map right now. Caterpillar, Goldman, J.P. Morgan, among some of the bigger gainers out there, American Express and Verizon, the only two in the red on the heels of their earnings reports this morning. The exchange is back after this break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 
Welcome back to the exchange. Markets right now are solidly in the green. The Dow's up roughly 550 points. At the highs of the session, we were up 602. At the lows, we were actually down 127. Here are some of the big stock movers this hour. You've got Boston Beer seeing a big jump after a beat on earnings and revenues. Shipment volumes were also up over the same time last year. Tenant healthcare getting hit hard. Earnings were mostly in line, but the company cut its top end of the full year forecast for earnings and revenue as well. And the Twitter drama continues. The stock is lower on reports the administration, the Biden administration and officials are discussing whether Elon Musk's ventures should be subjected to national security reviews, given some of his recent stances on Russia. Now let's send it over to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Ty. All right, Dom. Thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Ukrainian forces are piling pressure on Russian soldiers in the occupied region of Kherson. Uh, Ukraine is targeting supply routes while preparing for a potential full-scale assault to reclaim one of the first urban areas Russia captured after invading the country. Russia urging residents to evacuate uh, city, the city and relocate to surrounding areas. Tonight on the news, a full update on the ongoing war in Ukraine and how the U.S. may respond if Russia reverts to nuclear weapons. U.S. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham must testify before a special grand jury in the Georgia election probe. Investigators are looking to determine whether then-President Donald Trump and others illegally tried to influence the 2020 election in the state of Georgia. And Elon Musk reportedly plans to lay off most of Twitter's workforce if and when he becomes the owner of the social media giant. According to the Washington Post, Musk told prospective investors in his Twitter purchase that he plans to cut nearly 75% of Twitter's employee base. Meanwhile, Twitter reassuring its staff that there are no plans for layoffs. Now, back to you, Don. All right, Tyler Matheson with the news update. Thank you very much. Coming up next on the show, we're going from the grocery store to the gas pump to the garage. We'll get the names to buy in energy, autos, consumer staples ahead of their results coming up next week. The Exchange will be back after this break. Welcome back to The Exchange, everyone. We've already talked about the big tech earnings that we'll be seeing next week, but it's not the only sector with industry giants reporting. You've got big energy, big autos, and consumers also on deck. We're going to get our traders' take on some rivals going head-to-head Here with us is Gina Sanchez. She's the chief market strategist at Lido Advisors. She's also a CNBC contributor. Gina, always great to get your thoughts here. Let's talk first about energy. ExxonMobil and Chevron both set to report next Friday. The sector is expected to report the highest earnings growth. Maybe no, it's shocking there. Of all 11 sectors at more than 100%, a doubling, if you will. Gina, what's your play here? Which would you rather, Exxon or Chevron? So we actually, Alita owns Exxon, and so this is a company that we really like. They're both great companies, Dom, but, you know, we think Exxon has a little bit of, of an edge uh, in a few areas. Uh, you know, the, this is a, a company that has just, you know, been able to pay a great dividend, has a great um, history of beating earnings um, and guiding well. And so, you know, from our perspective, uh, you know, Exxon is, is still doing the work and, uh, you know, you know, a company that will continue to participate. All right. Exxon, the pick there. Next up, you've got two of the biggest automakers on deck. We're talking General Motors before the bell on Tuesday, followed by Ford after the closing bell on Wednesday. After a monster 2021, both stocks have suffered big this year, down roughly 40 plus percent. So what's the play here, GM or Ford? 
so we're going with Ford. So Ford is, you know, Ford is a company that's been suffering from some supply chain issues, as everybody knows. It definitely hurt them last uh, uh, last earnings. Uh, and however, you know, if you look at at what is going on within Ford. Um, demand is still very strong, uh, and so assuming the supply chain issues uh, eventually work themselves through, um, there's also the potential that as the shift mixes, of, uh, as the mix shifts uh, from traditional uh, Ford cars and trucks to electric cars and trucks, particularly the F-150, the company continues to get profitable, which is sort of the name of the game right now. Um, as you know, markets get tough, so you have good demand, good profitability. We think Ford is a good buy. All right, so Ford the pick there. And finally, let's get to the consumer-focused names. We've got big ones, both in staples and discretionary reporting. You've got McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Colgate-Palmolive. Colgate, as you can kind of see, they're taking it on the chin, falling 16%, while the other two are both down roughly 5% or so roughly this year. So on the consumer-facing side of things, Gina, the picks. So Lido owns both McDonald's and Coca-Cola. These are companies, right now, the consumer space is going to get hit, Don. So, Dom, you, you know that, that, um, you know, that we, we very likely are already in recession, and you're starting to see that already in the earnings expectations built into both McDonald's. Um, and Coca-Cola, but McDonald's is, is a company that has a tremendous profit margin, and profit margins matter when you're still faced with, you know, struggling with inflation, um, and it's one of, it's a very inexpensive, you know, priced item, you know, the, 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 the lineup is, is inexpensive, and it defends very well, so even though um, we're looking at a downturn, we still see um, support for McDonald's stock. Um, Coca-Cola, same story. Um, but, you know, you know, throw in there um, also a, a good dividend, right? And so, you know, Coca-Cola is uh, a company that is also expected to, to you know, feel it in earnings um, along with the rest of the consumer space. Uh, but this is a stock that people continue to demand. Um, and so we just, we, we see these as defensive consumer state, you know, consumer uh, exposure. All right, so we got the stock picks there. I'm going to follow up one more with a wild card here, Gina. I'd like to know in your mind whether or not you think buying 10-year Treasury notes yielding four and a quarter percent or more is a good buy at this point. So interesting. I mean, I think it, dep it definitely is... Um, the yield right now is quite attractive. Uh, and so where do we go from here? Um, the, the, you know, there's the argument that, at, that once you start to see the um, seasonal adjustments start to drop off in the labor markets, that the data will start to look slightly weaker um, than they have been looking. And it could open the Fed up uh, to potentially uh, you know, take a breather. And if, if that happens, then yes, I would say absolutely that that could be, you know, we could start to see the, the, the topping of the, of the, the current markets. Um, however, if the Fed keeps the pe pedal to the metal, then, you know, all bets are off uh, in the Treasury market. I guess it all depends on the data coming forward. Gina Sanchez, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Coming up on the show, higher rates taking their toll on home buyers for sure, all across the income spectrum including the mega rich, believe it or not. Robert Frank is in Leverett, Massachusetts at a $23 million home with that story. Robert. Falling sales at the top. Mega homes are coming on the market and piling up unsold. 
We'll take you inside the 60-acre, 120,000-square-foot estate in western Massachusetts that has its own indoor water park, and we'll give you the price. Coming up. Welcome back to The Exchange. We already know the housing market is slowing down, but if it crashes, the pain may start even at the top. Mega mansions are sitting unsold as mega wealthy buyers and sellers move around the real estate sidelines. Robert Frank is in Massachusetts at a $23 million listing with that story, and it's got a three-lane bowling alley that he's standing in front of right now. Yeah, Dom, if you can make it here quick, we even got shoes for you. This is the private bowling alley of a new 60-acre estate that just listed here in Western Mass. And these mega mansions are piling up fast on the market. The number of homes priced at $10 million or more is soaring 8% in September. That's 10 times the inventory growth rate that you're seeing in the broader market. Now, this particular house is 120,000 square feet. It was just listed by Douglas Elliman for $23 million. That's a big price in this part of the country. It's so big, in fact, that they're hoping that maybe resorts or companies even bid. Well, the real estate market for wealthy buyers is a little bit more difficult, but this property is definitely more unique than most single-family luxury properties. You have a village all to yourself. In addition to the main house, you got two guest houses. You've got this spa, which is 55,000 square feet of just recreation. In addition to that bowling alley, you've got this billiards room. That's for the adults. And then for the kids and the family, you don't need a quarter. You just come over to the two-story arcade, which has everything from foosball to lots of great pinball machines. Behind that is a basketball court. Next to me, are two tennis courts that convert into a concert stage. The Doobie Brothers Hall of Notes have performed private concerts in that concert hall. Again, this on the market for $23 million, a very tough market for a very unique house. Dom? Uh, so, so, Robert, I, I wonder, uh, can you clear something up for us? Because you, you deal with and you report on the ultra-wealthy all the time. You're an expert on them. Can you tell us, Buyers that buy $23 million homes, do they take out mortgages for these things or do they cut checks for them? In other words, do rising interest rates factor into this ultra-wealthy side of the equation? Brokers will say they And they do typically pay cash for these properties, but what's missed in that argument... All right. I think we lost Robert Frank there as he was in the middle of Western Massachusetts. But again, a $23 million home up for sale. I wonder who's going to bid on it. Coming up on the show, municipal bond performance on track for the worst year since at least the 1980s. But fund inflows, inflows are booming. So what's behind the disconnect? And is the worst over for those muni bonds? That's coming up next. The exchange will be right back. Worst yearly performance since the 1980s. But despite the underperformance, it's been a record-breaking year for inflows. The Vanguard tax-exempt bond fund has now added over $6.9 billion alone, smashing, absolutely smashing previous records. So what's to make of all this muni madness, the split narrative? Let's ask Paul Malloy. He's the head of municipal investing over at Vanguard. Paul... You would think that tax-exempt investments would always be attractive. So is the move lower in munis strictly tied to what's happening with rising interest rates? 
Absolutely. Um, we're now at a point where we're getting yield in the market again. And the only way you generate tax-exempt yield is to have higher yields. So this is you know, really the beginning of, I'd say, a, a muni renaissance. And you're seeing it as, as rates have gone up, municipals get more and more attractive. So that's the case because bond values are falling across the board. I get that. What is it that makes those municipal investments, muni bond investments, that much more attractive right now? In, in other words, what does that after-tax yield kind of look like to make them in contextual kind of proximity to treasuries or anything else more attractive? Yeah, it's actually making it look equity-like. You know, when you're getting municipal returns that are right on top of treasuries or in previous weeks above treasuries, you know, you're, you're, you're getting equivalent yields for at a high-quality part of the market, and then you add on the tax advantage in a high-tax state like a California or New Jersey, and once you look at the tax equivalent yields, you're getting 8% uh, yields, which is you know, great to be able to lock that in for the long run right now. So if that's the case, are there specific parts of the muni bond market that you are seeing as being more or less attractive on a relative basis? Is it going to be in some of those general obligation type bonds that are dependent on taxing authority and that sort of thing? Or, or is it revenue bonds tied to municipal projects that spin off cash flow? Where are the opportunities? Yes and yes. Anything in the investment grade space is looking really attractive right now. You know, fundamentals are as good as they've been in, in, in decades, so we're you know, much more well-prepared you know, heading into any potential downturn than we were, say, in the 2008 time period. You know, so you know, munis are set up to weather any, any downturn. Yields are higher or as high as they've been in, in years. So it, it, it really has a lot of stuff going for it at this point and is you know, possibly the best investment opportunity within the fixed income asset class at the moment. Vanguard, particularly longer dated munis. Well, you, you work for Vanguard. You, you, your, your company obviously runs funds. You guys are bond and stock pickers and you put them into funds for investors. It, how difficult is it to go out there and kind of pick and choose and select the right munis for your portfolio? Or are you better off, you know, just putting it in a fund? And I know you've got an axe to grind here because you work for Vanguard. But if I was to go out, could I just pick some tax exempt bond from my own state and, and, and expect it to be a good value? No, I think you want to be careful, and you want diversification above above all else. That there are still idiosyncratic risks out there. You know, particularly when you start to get into some of the deeper recesses of the high yield market. You know, so what you really want to do is leave it to you know commingled assets. Get a lot of diversification. Get your expertise, and you know invest in it for the long run, and let that ex let that diversification work out. Let the let the long run tax exemption work in your favor. You know, so it's really the, the, the quintessential buy and hold asset class and keep your, keep your holdings diversified. All right. Paul Malloy at Vanguard, thank you very much for the state of munis right now. We appreciate it. All right, let's now get to some breaking news out of Washington, D.C. Elon Moy is here with the story. Elon. Well, Dom, the House Select Committee on January 6th has now officially issued that subpoena to former President Trump for what it said was his central role in stopping the peaceful transfer of power on that day. Uh, the letter to former President Trump requests that he provide documents to the committee by November the 4th and that he sit for a deposition on November 14th after the midterms would be over. The letter to former President Trump states that he was at the center of the first and only effort by any U.S. president to overturn the election and obstruct the peaceful transition of power that ultimately culminated in a bloody attack on our capital 
and on Congress itself. Now, so far, former President Trump has signaled that he is unlikely to comply with this subpoena. He's called the committee the unselect committee and still uh, insists that he has won the election, even though uh, those claims have since been debunked. But again, the committee on January 6th now formally issuing its subpoena to former President Trump. We will see what the president has to say. Elon Moy with the latest there on the January 6th uh, probe. Thank you very much. Still ahead on the show here, by the way, we are at session highs right now, as you can see on the bottom right of your screen. The Dow's up roughly 615 points. Here's that mystery chart again, one more time, the one we showed you earlier. The shares have doubled over the past year, but really picked up steam with the passage of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. We'll reveal the company and the stock coming up next and whether there's more room to run the discussion after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We want to get to one more thing before we go, and that's nuclear power. The U.S. issuing multiple rounds of Russian sanctions, but uranium has avoided those restrictions, at least for now. Pippa Stevens joins me now with the reasons why and what could be next. Pippa. That's right, Dom. And earlier this month, the EU agreed on an eighth round of sanctions. But Russia's nuclear power industry has not been included. And that's because the country plays a key role. While uranium mining, milling and conversion happens around the world, Russia controls 40 percent of global uranium enrichment. Russia supplied 31 percent of Europe's enriched uranium last year and 28 percent of the U.S.'s. As Jonathan Hinzi from UXC said, there just isn't enough capacity in the West to cover our needs if imports from Russia were immediately banned. Right now, nuclear is about 19 percent of our power mix. And as the war stretches on, utilities are looking to diversify their uranium sources, which has led to renewed interest from investors. Upstream players have attracted a lot of attention. That's names like Cameco, as well as the URA and URNM ETFs. Utilities are another way to get exposure. Constellation Energy, which is unregulated, is the largest nuclear power operator in the U.S. Other names include Entergy, Duke and Dominion. And with global power prices jumping, Citi said recently that nuclear energy outlook is optimistic, Dom, for the year and decades to come. All right. And by the, and by the way, the mystery chart that we showed was Constellation Energy of yes, all companies yes. right there. So that's just how far <laughs> it's come. Pippa Stevens, thank you very much. Great story there. All right. That does it for us here on The Exchange. Right now, stocks are sitting just near session highs. You can see the Dow is up roughly 610 points. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.